the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Clarity owes to Christianity. Welcome to City of God. Today on City of God, I want to talk with you about distinctions. Now, this is a very interesting place to think because we're we're in a place, we're in a context where people tell us that distinctions can very much, very quickly become harmful. And they can. Let's be clear about that. If we sharply distinguish ourselves from others, uh, effectively making us a higher form of human than other humans, for example, that's a very bad distinction to make. We are all bearers of the image of God. We are all those who are made in God's image. This persists after the fall as I've talked about in my book, Reenchanting Humanity, my recent book. And yet, we have to recognize as believers that distinctions are grounded in God himself. The members of the Holy Trinity are not different persons, as if we have a tritheistic trinity or something like this. There is one God, three persons, one essence, three persons, And yet those persons are distinct from one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. Distinctions go all the way up, in other words. We have to recognize that the Godhead, further, is collectively involved in the creation of the world. And so when we're dealing with, let's say, a text like John 1 and bringing that together with Hebrews 1 and Genesis 1, we have the Father creating through the Son— by the Spirit. There's different language that different theologians will use there, and yet we're, we're trying to get at the fact that the Spirit is hovering over the waters, Genesis 1. John 1 is teaching us that the Word is the one who created all things, and Hebrews 1 is teaching us that the Father created through the Son. And so how beautiful is this? The whole Godhead, the whole Trinity is involved in creation, intimately involved with it, carrying it out at one purpose, beautifully, in the work of creation. What does this mean further? This means that there is a creator, who we would especially identify as Jesus Christ, and then there is creation, including every creature. That, in earthly terms, is the original distinction. We go to the Trinity to understand metaphysical distinctions, and we then understand that, that God himself makes the world. And so we have this major distinction between creator and creature, as the theologian Cornelius Van Til famously taught and emphasized so profitably. Well, that in turn means that we are justified in making appropriate distinctions in our world, and our world is, in point of fact, filled with them. There is an order to creation. Creation is made with structure. That is exactly what is happening in Genesis 1 in the first six days of creation, when different things are made and are differentiated from one another. Uh, The earth is not the sea. The birds are not the fishes. The fishes are not the plants. 
All these things are one harmonious order, so don't misunderstand. God has made a thriving, teeming, mellifluous order. He's, he's effectively composing a physical symphony for us in made form. And yet, you can distinguish between things in this world, and that is not a bad distinction. That distinction, instinct, does not owe to the fall. I guess you could call it the instinction. That's a bad theological joke. What are some distinctions that matter today? Recently, I was thinking about these deeper theological concepts and came up with some that I think we need to proclaim in our time as a matter of Christian witness. Let me give you several today on the podcast. First distinction that we need to make clear in 2020, drawing off of the theological distinctions I have thus far outlined. First, men are not women. This is part of what we see in creation. We see God making the man and the woman, and we see that the man is the image of God, and then the woman is formed from the man, and she is human as he is, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, and so she is an image bearer as well, flowing out of his form, his making. And this helps us to see that men and women are fundamentally members of the human race. So we have tremendous unity. We have fundamental unity. And yet, we also have fundamental distinction. We are together image bearers, men and women alike, and yet men are not women. And then a second shocking distinction here that flows, women are not men. This is not a negative thing to note. This is not a bad thing to note. This is not a thing to play down in 2020. Our culture is very much trying to collapse this distinction. Our culture does not believe in a strong understanding of manhood and womanhood because our culture does not believe in a strong understanding of God, and thus our culture does not believe in a strong understanding of the God who created and the God who created male and female in terms of the human race. We are in a society that is very strongly influenced, even more than we know, by skepticism and secularism and atheism to varying degrees, and that kind of society is one in which there is not going to be strong belief in God, of course, and thus there is not going to be strong belief in man, in humanity. In other words, in who God made humanity to be. So we have to be a movement, a movement of churches, first and foremost, local churches that preach and teach the truth about manhood and womanhood as made by God, made by God for his glory, with men and women having distinct roles and duties in different settings, home, church, society, and we need to make these clear, not because we are fundamentally angry at people, but because these are truths given us so that we will be able to make sense of our world and our very lives and our duties as members of Christ's bride, those who have been redeemed and born again and given eyes to see the beauty of God's creation. A third distinction we need to make, pets are not kids. Animals are not kids. If you put this out on social media, social media is a place where controversy thrives, in case you haven't noticed. You will, you will probably draw a very strong response. In fact, you may draw a stronger response for saying that pets are not kids than for any theological direct assertion you make on social media. People feel very strongly about this. Now, uh, a quick qualifier. I don't want to bury my point in qualifiers, which is very common in our post-truth culture. Uh, I'm not anti-pet. I'm not anti-animal in the home or something like this. Uh, I'm not all for, you know, untamed animals in the home. That's probably not a good idea. 
But, uh, you know, cat or dog or multiple cats or dogs, if you want to have those things, God made those animals, God made those creatures, you can sort that out. Those can be those can be common grace gifts to people in our world. You don't have to have them by any stretch. Uh, the domestication of animals and bringing them into the home is actually not that old of a phenomenon. Animals used to be farm animals, of course. Uh, now they've been brought into the home in the last few hundred years in the West. But hey, if, if you want to do that, there is absolutely nothing unbiblical about doing so or something like this. And, and again, that can be a source of common grace goodness to you. And yet, if you do that, or even if you don't do that, you just simply must distinguish between animals and children. I'm not saying you couldn't feel great affection for a dog or a cat or mouse or, I don't know, salamander. Do people love salamanders the way they love dogs? I don't know. And yet, I am trying to say that what we are fundamentally called to seek to produce by God's grace as he allows is children. We are called to multiply in Genesis 1 as part of the human race. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 features multiplying, having children as a crucial part of the dominion mandate. There is God's glory to be found in having children and filling the earth. Listen, we are in a directly anti-natal kind of context, anti-birth, anti-child. We're in a culture of death, to switch the metaphor. This is where we are. Even if we're not pro-abortion or something like this, something heinous and wicked in biblical terms, we can still be influenced by this kind of culture, and we can think that having a pet is basically the, the same thing as having a child. And that can, if we're not careful, very much inhibit maturity and growth and a proper sense of dominion in the earth. We need to be careful on, on these counts. We can love pets. But we need to love children far, 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 far more than any pet. We need to cultivate our children. We need to train our children. We need to love our children one day after another. Christians today have a serious opportunity to be a counterculture by loving children in a society and a time that basically, in, in some cases at least, puts pets and kids on the same level. And honestly, surfing the wave of this antinatal context even sees pets as better than kids. Because look, kids are a lot more work than pets. Kids put major obligations on you. Kids dampen your me time. In fact, they actually kind of, in some cases, vaporize it. Kids cause you to have to grow up in a way that pets don't. Kids have souls that live for eternity in either heaven or hell. So for Christians, it's not simply that we want to have physical offspring and bring them into the world. It's that we're trying to train up disciples in the, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel, such that they will live forever and live a meaningful life on this earth. Pets are not kids. The church needs to make this clear. We don't need to make it clear in a red-faced, angry way, but we do need to make it clear in a serious and unflinching way. Next distinction that I think we need to say in 2020. Boyfriends and girlfriends are not spouses. So in other words, being husband and wife is not the same thing as being a boyfriend or girlfriend or some form of that, even a fiancé and fiancé. I'm seeing this um, as I surf different areas of modern culture. When I hear about, in some cases, athletes, for example, who have a child, I often will look to see if that athlete is married. And it seems like in a very high number of cases today, 
um, there, there is a partner in question. This athlete, let's say it's a man, the soccer player in, in the UK or Europe or basketball player in America, football player, baseball player, whoever it may be. They have a child, maybe even children, but they don't have a spouse. They don't have a wife if we're talking about a man. They have a partner. And it's also very common today to have long relationships, even long-term relationships in a secular sense with a boyfriend or girlfriend, such that you're close to being married and you effectively function as if you're married, but you're not married. The church, again, needs to be deeply countercultural in calling people to marriage. Marriage is God's original plan for men and women. We know as the scripture unfolds that there is a strong place for singles in the local church. We know that singleness can be directed to God in a very strong and doxological way. And so we have a strong category for that for men and women who are called to singleness. That call, by the way, doesn't always transmit you know, from the sky as if you know uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're called to be single. But you are, you are nonetheless, if you are single as a Christian, called to be dedicated to the Lord and sold out to him. We also need to make very clear today, though, that God's plan holds and that most people, for their good and for God's glory, are called to marriage. This is not either being pro-marriage or pro-single. We are not forced into one of these two options. If you share these kind of things on social media, for example, if you say a positive word about marriage today, not a negative word included about singleness, it surprises me, frankly, how often you, you will have people respond to you intimating that you must necessarily be against single people. In someone like my case, that is absolutely not true. I know that Jesus, in, a, in an earthly sense, is single. I know that the Apostle Paul, at least for much of his life, is single. I've just talked about 1 Corinthians 7 and its teaching without referencing it directly, as I now just have. So we have that case. And yet, we're in a context that does not promote marriage, that does not see God's glory in marriage, that doesn't believe that God created marriage uniquely as the very foundation of society. We are in a context that doesn't see the very important role of marriage and the family in the local church. It's not that the local church is only composed of families grounded in marriages. Uh, it's not as if you know you latch on singles to that. And yet, how is an elder's character to be measured? Well, a crucial part of the character of the key leader of the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is husband of one wife and that he is leading his family well, that his children are not in rebellion against him and his wife. That tells us that the backbone in a human sense of the local church is supposed to be men who have strong marriages and, as God allows, strong families. And if those marriages and families waver, as sadly they do, if they are not healthy in this life, of course, there's no perfect marriage or family. I don't have one. No one does out there. But if those marriages are not strong and stable, then a man should definitely step out of eldership, at least for a time. That tells us then that the importance of the family has not gone away in the new covenant. It's very significant. So the local church is, yes, going to be a blend of families and single people. It is. It's, it's intended to be that way. But the natural family has not been replaced in its, in its position of importance in the new covenant assembly 
the local church. Boyfriends and girlfriends are not spouses. We should train our children to see that marriage is a blessing, that marriage is created by God for our fulfillment, flourishing, health, maturity, and growth. We don't know if our kids are going to be called to marriage. We can't marry them off. We certainly shouldn't. Uh, any more than we can save them, any more than we can be God in any excuse me, element of their life. And yet we are called to teach our kids these things and even, yes, even to ready them if God calls them, as he will call most people, to marriage. Part of how we prioritize marriage is we do not treat boyfriends and girlfriends as spouses. And this, again, puts us in the cultural headwind, but that is a place we frequently are and must be as believers. I'll say one more distinction here. Feelings are not facts. We're in a very feelings-driven culture, as we've talked about earlier and as we've talked about frequently on this podcast. Facts are not feelings. Ben Shapiro, the conservative commentator, has a, a formulation of this where he says that facts don't care about your feelings, and I'm simply saying another version of this. Feelings are not facts. Our life, in other words, is not to be driven by our feelings. It's not that our feelings are of no importance. God made feelings. God gave us passions. God gave us affections in a pre-fall sense so that we would surge with love and joy in him, for him, even after the fall. We should not understand our affections, our feelings, if you will, as bad realities, as if Christianity is intended to vaporize your feelings and just make you this mind walking around spouting off knowledge or something like this. That's clearly not the case. We're supposed to grieve with those who grieve, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans 12 clearly teaches us just to cite one passage that talks about our affections. It is not a bad thing to weep when a loved one dies. It is it is, in truth, a right thing, and it is a good thing to celebrate with those who are blessed by God. What a fundamentally Christian instinct. So we're not anti-feeling, if you will, as believers. We shouldn't be. The gospel does not kill feeling. But we should understand that we are not called to be led by our feelings. That is how our culture in 2020 understands feelings, desires, inclinations, authenticity. It believes that it finds authenticity and meaning and purpose and a strong, stable sense of identity in feelings. Nothing could be further from the truth in an actual sense. We need to live lives as believers that are fundamentally normed by the truth. All of us are going to have moments, perhaps a good number of them over the course of a life, sadly, where our feelings do not align with the truth. In those kind of moments, um, we, we don't want to flagellate ourselves, but we do want to repent of ungodly instincts, ungodly desires, ungodly feelings, ungodly affections. We do want to ask God to forgive us, and we do want to ask God for power to believe what is true and not believe what is a lie. This is not something that happens once every two months for a believer. This is something that is occurring on a regular basis in us as God is transforming us by his spirit, conforming us to the very image of the Son of God, changing us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. It is not that God is anti-feeling, but we must make sure that we are led, not so much by facts, that's a kind of quick way of saying the truth, we must be led by the truth. 
Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6. Let's be led by him. Doing so, along with making all these distinctions and living according to them, for these are simply basic biblical distinctions, is going to set us apart in this world, is going to occasion comment and conversation with unbelievers around us and even Christians who are not being well taught, and will allow us, as I have said earlier, to speak the truth in love. And by God's grace, as the Spirit moves, see people transformed, see people embrace God-given distinctions, ultimately grounded in the life of God and the creator-creature distinction itself. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.